Hey, everybody. Welcome to uh, Crew Call with Mike Rose. This is uh, volume 3-13, uh, a sequential number that's utterly meaningless otherwise. We're doing this at the very, very end of June 2002. And um, I have the pleasure to uh, say that I'm going to be chatting here with my old compatriot, Scotty Mason. How you doing, Scott? I'm great, Mike. How are you? Thanks for having me back, by the way. Good to have you back. I mean, geez, we would we would we've been doing this for so long that we could take a year off and pick right up, can't we? Well, I you know, I I think a lot of that stems from, you know, not only our history of, of being podcast partners, but our history of being friends. Sure. And some muscle memory. Yeah. I can't stand you, by the way. And I swore I'd never do this again. So the, the check better be in the mail. <laughs> It'll be the usual amount. <laughs> Perfect. So I thought that uh, this would be a good time to do a little bit of a catch up. You know, we uh, we sort of check in with each other periodically, um, all too infrequently, because like everybody, it seems these days, lots going on. And uh, yeah. despite my ever advancing age, I'm as busy as I ever have been with business. And um, you probably remember back in the winter, I had that uh, sort of like really, really uh, intense, productive layout building section, uh, session or segment of time, if you will. Yep. Um, and boy, am I glad I did that when I did that, because by the time I think April rolled around, I haven't done much of anything on the layout. Well, you are, you know, at least, and, and again, you're, you're right. I mean, we don't, we don't talk as much as we did. And it always kind of feels like, you know, at least you know, from my perspective, oh, you know, I should call Mike and, you know, the next thing you know, another two weeks goes by, but easy, easy to do. You know, when you're on, you're on. And, and we identified a long time ago that nobody builds probably faster than you do um, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, but Wasn't always that way. No, I, you know, I think it's something you, you learn to do like anything else in the hobby. There's, there's um, a bunch of factors actually. Um, yep. Yep. I mean, because when uh, I ran into uh, Mike Confalone, I was I was building in like, you know, 1970s techniques. And I remember going up to his house and seeing his mostly unfinished layout and leaving there thinking, this guy's out of his mind. He'll need five lifetimes to finish that layout. <laughs> and then I watched as he rapidly made, you know, m my current kind of progress on his layout using some techniques I hadn't employed. And I thought, I might make I might need to make room for some of these techniques. This looks like a better way to do stuff and a faster way to do stuff and an easier way to get a good result. You know, the hobby evolves and uh, techniques come and go. And, you know, when I first got into the hobby, you know, scenery techniques included zip texturing and, you know, uh, ground foam even hadn't been invented. Never mind some of the more realistic three-dimensional scenery techniques that we have today. Well, we do go way back. We do go way back. I wonder how many people that are listening have even heard of zip texture. Well, I, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that long ago. You know, I, I mean, it was still in use in the eighties, but, uh, and I think that was just about the kind of line in the sand where, you know, that ended and, and, and ground foam um, was invented. Well, what was the time period where you were a custom layout builder? What years were those? Uh, the, 
like from about 2005 to probably about 2012-ish. All right. So, I mean, 2005. So basically at that point, you're using all current modern techniques that are probably still applicable. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I mean, I still, you know, flip through the, the, the scenic express catalog just to kind of stay current. Um, even though my, my modeling isn't quite as active as it was. Um, and, and, you know, some things are new, but there's a lot of, you know, materials in there that, that I was using back then. Yep. That makes sense. Uh, personally, I think for me, the biggest revelation has been using the green florist foam because when you're doing Pennsylvania and you have the mountains and the tree situation that I have, if I was doing it with screen wire and plaster and having to drill holes for each tree, forget it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think plaster is one of those materials, you know, hard shell scenery, you know, there's another term, right. Uh, you know, invented uh, along with zip texturing by Lynn Westcott, uh, you know, that, that have kind of gone pat by the wayside, uh, you know, and they all have their pros and cons. I mean, uh, florist foam is, is easy to cut. It's easy to stack. It's easy to glue. Um, but it does, you know, tend to make a little bit of a mess. The, the, the way I have, um, made a friend of that is that I, I, I realized at one point, I think when Mike, uh, Mike C introduced me to it, you know, he was using, well, Mike C methods for cutting it. He would basically stack it up, hot glue it together, and then attack it. If he had a machete, he'd, he'd use a machete. Yep. When he was done, you know, he told he warned me in advance. He said, it makes a big mess, but it cleans up easily. So the the whole Laceyville Peninsula was done like that, and and uh, and he wasn't wrong. Um, subsequent to that, I, I realized that all of my woodworking techniques and woodworking shop were perfectly suited to this foam stuff. And mm -hmm. these days, um, I cut the majority of the foam in my workshop, come back, try it in place, make glue up some sub-assemblies. I'm no longer using uh, hot melt glue. I'm using a particular kind of, of DAP uh, adhesive that has been very hard to get uh, in the pandemic uh, era here. But like it's always on back orders. I just order a case of it, even if I don't need it, because it takes me two, three months to get it, believe it or not. Wow. Uh, but that stuff allows me to glue up these sub-assemblies. And in many cases, I'll paint it and dirt it in the workshop and then just bring it to the layout and glue that in place and plug in my trees and, and blend in anything that I need to blend in. So the amount of mess I'm making in the layout room has gone way down from what it used to be, which is good because most of it is scenic at this point. So you have even less incentive to be making giant messes. Well, and, and, and here's a tip that you may not know, but, but it will help you um, in, in terms of your own personal cleanliness uh, because that when you cut that foam, it, 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 it um, takes in an electric charge and becomes staticky. Um, You're going to tell me about the spray static stuff, aren't you? Yeah. So, um, you know, the anti-static spray. Um, Very know, useful in the winter, actually. Yeah. You know, if you, if you, if you give yourself just a, a quick overall squirt of it, uh, you know, the stuff doesn't cling to you and it just makes it that much easier. You know, that way you're not tracking it upstairs or, 
you know, into the rest of the house. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. You told me about that years about ago, the, you know, I'm sorry. You told me about that years ago and there's a can of it right on the shelf. Yeah, static guard. It's can't to be handy you know, whenever I need it. So it was a we, good we used it quite a bit when we were building layouts. Um, uh, and you know, we just, we just talked a little bit about the evolution of, of scenic techniques, but, uh, you know, the first time I ever remember anyone using foam for scenery was on uh, the the Clinchfield layout that Model Railroader did, and I think it was 1979. That was probably closed cell, right? The blue stuff. Yeah, it was. It was the pink, the pink stuff. Right. And uh, some people yeah, love I, that stuff. I I don't. I you know I've I've worked with it. Sometimes I use it as like a base layer if I'm going to be piling stuff on top of it, just not to waste the more expensive green stuff. But yep. uh, I, I much prefer the open cell. Much easier to stick things into it. That kind of oh, thing. it's much easier to cut. Right. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Especially in different directions, like you can you can scribe and snap it in one direction, and then you try to cut in the, in the other direction, and just you just pull it. Yeah. So that, um, I, I guess, you know, being able to do what I wanted to do in a more rapid fashion while still enjoying the process, right? Because everybody knows I'm a process guy. So I want to, while I'm doing it, I want to make sure that it's, it's fun. I mean, it's kind of why we do this. <laughs> supposed to be fun. Supposed to be, yeah. Supposed to be fun. So, you know, if you're cussing and cursing and not enjoying it, I would say, look for a different methodology because there's not just one methodology. And, you know, as a, like I was just like I was saying before, as a woodworker, um, you know, the shop has a complete dust collection system and it's got the ability for me to vacuum myself off and, you know, blow off my, I was going to see my hair, but haha, but you know what I mean? Well, it's too, you already did that. Yeah. Before <laughs> Maybe that's what happened. But before I go upstairs, you know, um, so you're right. I mean, the last thing you want to be doing is tracking that that green uh, uh, dust everywhere. Oh. But that's, again, like I say, the like this whole all this winter's activities where I I basically completed the whole area that used to be Pittston Yard. And, you know, it's now it's the Jenkins DuPont area and then went into Doria and down into Pittston Junction, like that whole front wall. Now, that must have been about. Um, I'm going to say maybe 35 linear feet of layout construction. It's a big, a big impact thing. Mm -hmm. uh, almost all of that was built like I, like I described by, by cutting and gluing everything together and sub assemblies in the workshop, painting and dirting it in there and then bringing it back and connecting it all together. That, that junkyard that I did, the entire junkyard scene was built in the workshop and then brought out somehow by me alone. And you gotta remember this thing's like the size almost of a whole four by eight sheet, just kind of shaped like a kite. And I, I, I brought that back out into the layout room over the partitions, weighed nothing, right? Because it's all foam, but pretty, you know, unwieldy. Sure. And, and basically got it and sat it down on top of the front of the layout and then went underneath and picked it up again and just kind of planked it in place. And, and then, you know, and then went back out from under the layout and looked at it and thought, geez, that actually worked. <laughs> you don't You're... know until you do it at that moment. I had to go through the entire process, hoping that it was going to work the way I, I, I thought it might, you know. So I mean, it's kind of cool to go through that whole process. You're very good at engineering. It's, it was a problem to solve. It was this weird, like I said, kite shaped 
very deep, odd corner that I needed to fill up with some kind of scene. And, you know, I, with most railroads, you don't get a chance very often to have a deep scene. You know, you, we're all too many of our, all too much of our layouts are, you know, 18, 24 inches deep around the walls, try to get as much as you can uh, track wise in, into a room uh, with good reason, because no, no, nobody has unlimited space. But this just happened to be this odd corner that was left after the tracks necessarily cut through a big opening into the original basement room from the addition. I, I have to say that I stared at that space for months and months and months and months trying to think, try to picture what would go there, you know. So to have the, the junkyard scene kind of come together so relatively easily and, and again, a lot of fun to do. I probably did it in two weeks in the workshop. You know, you talked about that depth, depth issue, and you know it, it, it's interesting that uh, you know when when layout design evolved to more walk around forms, that the the depth issue kind of went away, and that's when this whole school of you know you don't want to go more than eighteen inches deep. Uh, you know, Tony Custer, you know, kind of really was was leading that charge. Um, you know, Photo backdrops his, became essential. Well, you know, his focus is is really solely operations. Uh, everything else is an aside to operations. And but but I think there are instances in that corner is, is a perfect example of an instance where you have the luxury of building some scenery in depth. And to me, there's a, there's a big advantage if you are trying to capture the feel of, of a certain geographic region. And, and, right. and Pennsylvania is, is such a great place to model because, you know, you've got hills, you've got valleys, you've got a lot of water. Uh, and you, you really get a sense of depth and a sense of place right. when you look at that part of your layout. Right. And, and you know what? That corner was basically useless for anything else. You couldn't get in there. Not like you could run any tracks in there or anything. So it was just like, okay, what can I do to make, make the most of this weird spot? And, and I'm, I'm actually in retrospect, very glad it happened that way. I mean, it wasn't planned. It just kind of worked out that way. Like well, so many things, you know, Mike, Mike Conflone does a really great job. And I, and I think Dick Elwell does as well. And there are many others of, adhering to the less is more right ideal and 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 that corner of your layout is a perfect example of that i mean you know you could have finagled some stuff in there if you really wanted to you might not have liked it too well but you could right. have and you know you're operation centric so you know you could have justified it um but uh it it probably would have you know comparing one way of doing it the way you did it against that way i i think the benefits of the way you did it are, are so much more striking in that you know you really got a feel for where you are it would have looked like a finagle to me i think you know right and and it, it this is this is like a natural segue to what i wanted to talk about in terms of operations because what i at, at one point during the pandemic, I decided, you know what, I'm going to start running the layout again, you know, and my buddy Dave would come over and we'd run, we'd run trains. And, you know, we probably do that about either four to five times a month. And um, 
And we do it, you know, when we feel like doing it and we just pick up where we left off. And the only thing that happens in between is if a train has gone into staging, I restage the train. Sometimes I just reorganize it and head it back out largely intact. Uh, more often I'm taking a few cars out of it and, uh, and, and putting a few different cars into it. Um, beyond that, all of the locals, everything you're doing in the yards and at Mahoopany and even on the short lines, just pick up where you where you left off. It's like it was all frozen in time. And I had no idea how that was going to work, but as it turns out, it works really well. And it means that if I get a, an urge to go down and, and run a train in between obsessions, I can pick up a local and go, you know, go switch out Jenkins or something. You know what I mean? Whatever I feel like doing, I mean, just do it. And it doesn't interfere with or muck up the operations at all because it just that's just how the operations are. So, you know, on my line, um, as you recall, there's only, only really two uh, daily con railroad trains, a, a northbound and a southbound. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're operating like they did in my era, which is what I'm doing. Yeah. So those trains are important because uh, if you didn't run them at the right time, your yards would just get clogged up. Everything would kind of ground, grind to a halt. Um, other than that, there's probably at least five or maybe even six Conrail locals that we run. Um, there's two or three Pocono Northeast locals that we run. There's one TMSL mini local that we run uh, over in uh, Tawanda there. And, um, and that's not even talking about the, the DNH road trains and one DNH local that gets run to staging. So, I mean, there's a lot of options, but you have to I kind of think about the whole thing as a system and roughly run it in sort of an order, right? So typical order might be you run one of the Conrail road trains. If it's the one that stops at Pittston Yard first, drops off a big block at Pittston, picks up a big chunk of cars and continues on to Mahoopany, then goes on to staging. Yeah. Once it's dropped all that stuff in Mahoopany, there's now a job to do at Mahoopany. You wouldn't run another road train until Mahoopany was switched out. Meanwhile, my buddy Dave is probably switching out Pittston Yard, making up some locals. And we're probably, you know, we probably uh, ended at that point. You know, we usually run maybe three hours or so. Yeah. Um, next time we get together, we start running all those locals and finish maybe switching Mahoopany. And then the next time around, it might be time to run the Conrail Road train in the other direction, which then has that creation of locals because of the cars picked up and dropped off effect. So, and then, you know, we might decide, geez, you know, we haven't run the DNH in a while. Let's have a DNH kind of a night. And, you know, we'll run a few DNH trains, which is kind of what would happen. They, they actually ran more trains in my line in my era than Conrail did in terms of road trains. Well, you know, it's interesting, Mike, because this, you know, and, and as you're, you're talking, I'm, I'm coming up with a whole bunch of questions. Um, but I'll start off with a statement, you know, the, the, the new portion of the layout, and I, I still use the term new, <laughs> Um, although, you know, and now it's been a few years, 
uh, has opened up so many more operating scenarios for you and flexibility to do just that to you know have a DNH session, right? Or Big you know you know one of the one of the small one of the short lines, you know that sort of thing. And and I think when you get to the point where you're having you know back to regular full fledged operating sessions, um, you know that layout is going to be really really fun to operate. But um, so the, the first question is now that you've got you know all this additional stuff all these new things you can do do you find that the it's kind of revived the the older jobs i don't think those i don't think the interest in those ever went away because the entire thing is all interrelated and mm -hmm. you know i used to tell uh confalone years ago when i when i was first going up there he'd say what do you want to do and i'd say i don't care there's no bad jobs on the on the on the allagash mm -hmm. and having run all of the jobs on my layout, I feel the same way about it. I, I honestly enjoy every single thing on the layout. And the pleasant surprise that I had hoped would happen is I'm not getting bored at all because enough time between doing the same job uh, is sort of built in. Like, I think it takes us about at least five, sometimes six sessions to sort of get through an entire cycle. Yeah. And at that point, you know, the last time you did that same thing, it was a month and a half ago. I can't remember what I had for breakfast. So it worked out <laughs> well. Yep. Yeah, um, no, you're right. Beyond that, the other thing I found was, and one of the things that drove that scenery uh, blitz uh, this winter was I was hugely enjoying operating through the presentable areas of the layout. And then if I came to a section of bare plywood, it would just like take me right out of it. Like I, I would just, I would just lose being lost in it. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm just running on a piece of plywood here. And, and then, so it motivated me to get that section presentable, not rushing it necessarily, but also understanding that if I did the enjoyable task of finishing that section, I was going to get enjoyment from that from there on out during operations. You know what I mean? So that is kind of what has been, um, you know, the yin and the yang of ops driving layout, layout driving ops kind of thing, you know? So um, that's been a huge thing to, uh, to discover how much is fun. And then as you get more and more constant knees online, you realize, oh, geez, you know, I need the cars that I bought, you know, eight years ago with that constant E in mind, I need to get those built and, and uh, you know, weathered and, and waybills done for them and work them into the whole uh, operating scenario. You know what I mean? So that's been a ton of fun uh, as well. The other interesting thing that I just wanted to mention and see again, because you've probably operated on more different layouts than I have. So I want to see if this, if your experience, if this mirrors your experience at all. But despite us being very familiar with the operational scheme, because of the sort of organic way that little decisions affect what happens next, we find sometimes that, geez, we have to run an extra. Or <laughs> how do we end up with one too many trains in staging? What do we forget? You know, sometimes you you think it's time to run a southbound and you screw up, it was really time for a northbound. So these, these sort of pleasant little dilemmas that come up become 
interesting problems to solve that require, I think, very real worldish kind of, uh, of discussions. You know, do we have the power for that train? What do we have to do? Do we have to drop it in? You know what I mean? It's like all of the prototypical kind of, uh, of fun uh, problems to have. Uh, sometimes okay. you have to take cars off the layout because you, you just end up with too many cars as you start putting some of those that you just built into the mix. So um, it seems like there's a, like a, a, a good working number of cars on the layout. And if you ask me what it was, I couldn't tell you. It's probably in the mid 300s would be my best guess. It, it, it's amazing that you can accommodate that. Um, you know, there are a couple of things that, that came to mind while you were saying that. <coughs> Excuse me. First of all, I, you know, and I know you're modeling the 80s, but, uh, you know, every, everything that you just talked about is, is, a, is a real world, real railroad problem today. Right. Uh, so it always was. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but I think, you know, even more so with, you know, some of the logistical issues that um, railroads are facing, you know, in getting uh, container trains out of ports. Well, in many ways, they've created their own constraints. Well, they, I have they, the excuse they, of it's in a basement. What they've done is they've decided they're going to run, you know, three mile long trains with sidings that are a mile and a half long. And then they wonder why they don't have a fluid system. Right. Uh, but, you, you know, you also mentioned the word motivated. And, you know, if there was one word that I would use to describe you, it would be motivated. Um, but you you're you're able to be motivated because you you built the layout in a certain way where you know you long before you ever started building scenery the trains were running and and i think a lot of model railroaders don't do it that way they're so hell-bent to get to the scenery and structure building process that they say well you know i'll, I'll get it wired up and fine-tune it and make sure it's running well at some point but you know and some people get so focused on operation they never even get around to building scenery well and there's, there's that side of the coin too but you know i know so many people that you know have have laid track and you know before you know they ever got the bugs out you know they were they were ballasting track and and you know building scenery yeah, and that's building that's a big mistake well it, it's a huge mistake because if anything's going to demotivate you it's um you know when the trains don't run right well, you know, uh, the, the, one of the last unfinished areas um, on, on the new section there is the uh, Kaiser Valley Industrial Park, which is like on the other side of the, of the backdrop from Taylor Yard. You, you, mm -hmm. may, you may remember it. Uh, and even today, it's bare plywood and track, but everything works. And I've been running that for, I'm going to say, maybe a little over a year at this point. Um, and I've, been, I've, I've made a point of, uh, whenever possible, taking the local over there and working it. And just recently, based on lessons learned, I decided that I wanted to have a shorter tail track, but a longer passing siding, and that a particular consigny really should have the two tracks that it had on the prototype, and that another one should have a longer track, and things like that. That would have been not ideal to do if it was all fully scenic and ballasted, obviously, right? I was able to make all the changes I needed to make in a couple of 
easy hours on a Saturday afternoon, you know? So I, I will say that the design and, and, and the, uh, the layout of the track and the way, the way you switch it um, has kind of proven itself sufficiently that it's, it's going to be, I think my next, um, my next project over there. And um, I'm going to be visiting my modeling area. We've got a family thing in, in New York uh, coming up soon. And um, Karen and I are going to just take a run over to uh, Pittston and I'm going to take another stab at taking backdrop photos at Pittston Junction of the, uh, of the houses. Hopefully I can uh, do that without getting arrested. <laughs> and uh, uh, I'm also going to just take another drive through and maybe, maybe walk down the streets a little bit uh, in that Kaiser Valley Industrial Park just to get a little more of a feel of, of smaller details, like maybe little streams or culverts or you know, anything that might make it interesting that I'd want to capture, you know? So I've always found that when I travel back to my modeling area, it's always like a, uh, uh, an extra uh, kickstart to, to want to do something on the layout itself. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, speaking of photos, I know we kind of talked about this in the pre-show, but um, I wanted to I wanted to bring up something about photos and backdrops and photoshopping and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Uh, Mike Confalone's always done all my Photoshop work and 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 still will. Um, for the um, for the I guess I would call it the the test or or temporary backdrop at Pittston Junction, I took the photos that I had taken when Tony V gave gave us the yard tour that time, um, and and very clumsily used Photoshop to put them together. Uh, and when I say clumsily, I mean, really, I found a setting in Photoshop that did it automatically and just let it do its thing. And then the trick was trying to print it at the right size to be scale. Went through about half a ream of paper and taped it all together and put it up on the wall. And two, I realized two things. That's going to work. And it's going to look amazing if done right. And uh, two, wasn't quite done right. I, I need to walk down that sidewalk on the opposite side of the street and take each house as a dead-on shot with some overlap uh, because taking it from Pittston Junction on a tripod and just swinging the camera, it gives you the illusion that one end of the houses are sort of tailing off on a curve. Could look right if there was a curve, but there isn't. It needs to go straight <laughs> ahead. So all of that's wrong, you know. Um, and then on the, on the podcast group the other day, and I don't know what maybe decide to do this, but I had a little, a little wooden block representing the exact size and shape of the yard office at Pittston Junction. And I had the exact size and shape because my buddy, Tony V actually measured the yard office for me and sent me, sent me diagrams, giving me all the critical dimensions of the building. It's good that he did that because that building is now gone. Um, it's an interesting building. I, I looked at it and I wondered, you know, if it was a yard office or like a snack stand or something. Yeah, because it, it had was, that it funky was always a yard office. And there were some stories about that about that building when when I went down for my uh, for my cab ride on the on the Mahoopany local. Um, when I was talking to the guys in the office there before we left, they were saying that the basement of that building used to flood all the time because it's right next to the Lackawanna River there. Uh -huh. And they said the entire basement was full of mold. 
and you oh, will not God. ever want to go down there. As I found oh. myself slowly backing out of the door, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in if in the pictures that I have coming out of the retaining wall, which is part of the abutment that holds up the land right adjacent to the Lackawanna River and provides the ground immediately in front of the tower there, or to the side of it, I guess. There's a wooden pipe coming out of that concrete. And by, by wooden, I mean, it's built like a barrel almost. It's built out of staves. <laughs> so can you imagine how old that is? And I, I found out that that is what drains the water out of the basement of that place and probably <laughs> also acted as an inlet for the water to get into the basement of that place. Sure. Yeah, it, it, it goes both ways. If those walls could talk, you know, it, it would be something. So anyway, I cut, I, I had a block of redwood and I, and I cut it, you know, the slope of it and all of that to the exact dimensions that Tony gave me. And I used it there to, in, in many ways, help me position the tracks and picture how it needed to go. It's obviously a lot more compressed uh, than the prototype. So some of the distances between the tracks look a little pinched. So I don't know, just the other day, I just was looking at that. Maybe I think it was during, during an op session. And, and it's like the one thing there that is not finished. It's a block of wood, you know, and, and <laughs> when it's in your pictures, it looks stupid. And I just said, you know, I'll bet if I just took some of those old pictures that I have and just sized them to, to, to be the size of the walls and stuck them onto that block, it would look better than just a block. And that was the pictures that I posted uh, on the podcast group. And, and mm -hmm. it kind of like exceeded my expectation because it's like, geez, you know, it, it, the pictures were a little skewed. They weren't taken looking directly at it. So you can see that the awning isn't coming off the building the right way, you know, but I could, I could solve that with some Jimmy Simmons awnings, you know? Yep. Um, but uh, a lot of people kind of chimed in and, 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 you know, talked about it. And our buddy Ramon said, well, you know, um, Lance Minheim is a, you know, is, is a good guy with Photoshop and, you know, and I basically said, yeah, I know Lance is like, he like invented making buildings out of, uh, out of pictures. You know, I've, I've been following Lance's stuff for, I guess, decades at this point. Right. Right. So, well, I mean, he's, <laughs> yeah, he perfected it. I mean, the guy was doing streets and roofs and, you know, that, that look exactly right because they're pictures of the exact right thing, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I said to Ramon, I said, you know, short of asking Lance to do it, I'm going to get some young whippersnapper that knows Photoshop and shop and try to translate to him what, what I want him to do. You know, next thing you know, I had forgotten Lance was on the group. <laughs> and he, you know, he just pops around and he says, hey, Mike, I'll do that for you. So we exchanged some emails and I sent him the pictures and he says, I, I know exactly what needs to be done. He says, I'll, I'll have it for you on Friday. Wow. And I just, but see, this is what model railroaders are like. You know what I mean? We do say what you will about people, but I have found model railroaders to be very helpful to one another in general. Is that what you found, really? Well, the ones I know. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I, I won't disagree with you. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, you know, and, and I've been exposed to maybe some things through some clubs where I can, you know, point to some people that, you know, you wonder why they bothered to be in the club in the first place. Right, right. Uh, but you yeah. have to figure when your own personal circle of friends, these people are handpicked. Of course, they make the cut. 
Sure. Well, right. right. So, you know, I, I look at us, right. You know, I mean, we, you know, we, we, we started a podcast, you know, we've, we've been, we've had our hands in so many things that, you know, are, are, are giving back to the hobby. Um, you know, our, our friend, Bob Leonard, you know, whom I've known for 30 years now, uh, you know, taught me, you know, really kind of took me under his wing and, and, you know, taught me so many aspects of the hobby and, and then stood by me, you know, until I was comfortable with him. He was uh, a, he's a genuine, uh, nice guy. You can oh, he's, he's just, and, he, and he's just, you know, he, he figured these things out long ago. Right. Uh, you know, and, and he, when he sees someone who has a genuine interest and is sincere, he will do anything he can to make sure that they get the information they need. Um, you know, and the same with Dick Elwell and, and, you know, many, many others, yourself included, my Confluent included, uh, you know, our, our, our kind of, you know, circle of, of compatriots, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's not a, it's in my case, it's not a list of a hundred, but I'll bet it's a list of, you know, a dozen or more like really, influential and, and, and uh, crucial people that, that have just helped me just, just out of the goodness of their hearts. You know, I mean, like yeah. Ken McCurry has bailed me out so many times I've, I've, I've lost count and, and the, you know, the magnanimous uh, way that Tony V has gone out of his way to be of assistance and even in introducing me to other people who could be of assistance and just, I could go right down the list. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's, it's, it's amazing. and truly well, grateful. Know, so so, you know, here's where it started for me. And, and, and you know, I, I was very fortunate, but, you know, this could have gone the other way for me and I could, you know, not know you and be a stamp collector or something. But, you know, in the, in the, in the early 70s, when I was first getting into the hobby, I, I, I realized early on that, you know, there were kind of different levels to the hobby. And, and you know, I was always curious about, you know, what the better modelers were doing. And, and there was a very small model train shop that uh, a guy in the next town over ran out of his basement. And I, th I think, you know, his wife. Very you know, typical. I'm sorry. Very typical. Very typical. But this guy was very, very high end. You know, he was, he was, you know, bringing in brass and selling brass. It was all, it, it was not Tyco. It was not right. stock track. It was, you know, the, the better stuff. And, and he was building a beautiful layout and uh, he uh, each fall, he put on a series of clinics, he and his buddies, uh, guys like John Young, who passed away a few years ago, who was a, a wonderful old scale modeler um, and, and many others. And, you know, I just sat there and, and, and tried to absorb as much of this, you know, stuff as, you know, a seventh grader, eighth grader could at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, but the thing that stood out, you know, back then there, the flex track really hadn't evolved to the point where, you know, it, it was even 15 years ago, right? Well, a lot of fiber tie, wasn't it? Fiber tie track, <laughs> you know, it was still brass rail, right? you know, and serious modelers hand laid track. And I was cutting it with diagonal cutters and filing it square. Oh Yeah. Yeah, there were no flush cutters. Right. So like about uh, warriors. Jeez. Yeah. And so, you know, I wanted to learn to hand lay track. And I and I I picked up um the methodology to hand laying, you know, straight or curved track very easily. But turnouts, boy, I'll tell you. Uh 
talk about over my head. It's a different animal. And this guy would, he, he said, look, you know, I'm open Saturdays from, you know, 12 to four, come on over. And when, you know, nobody's here, you know, when I don't have to wait on a customer, he said, you know, I'll, we'll work on learning to handle turnouts. I'll show you the process. And I mean, he, this guy spent hours and hours and hours. And this was no fast tracks jig. No, this was long before fast tracks, you know, made the process a lot easier, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, it was me and his son and, and uh, another buddy of mine. And, you know, this guy was basically just, you know, tutoring us for free every Saturday. And, yeah, but, you know, I, I think when you I think when you see when you when you're that kind of a person and you see you've got a live one, you want to do that. Yeah. Um you know, whether it was for his personal satisfaction or just, you know, knowing he was bettering the hobby by, by, you know, teaching something that, that, you know, you don't easily pick up. Um, you know, I'm not sure what his motivation was, but, you know, he, he always seemed to be sincere. And like I say, you know, I, it was really kind of that, um, willingness that was, um, embedded in me. Uh, you know, that, that made me feel like, you know, there's more to this hobby than just kind of doing my own thing. And uh, sounds like the right guy at the right time. Yeah, it was it was definitely um, fortuitous. I, I can remember the, the hobby shop um, in Dartmouth and I was going to it with my dad back in the O scale days. It was called for some reason Tri Lores. <laughs> OK. And um you know, my dad had an O-scale Lionel setup that I wish I had now. It would look great on the wall, you know. Um, <laughs> but at one point, I guess that guy sold out to another guy named Bill Bays. And Bill was a typesetter for the Standard Times uh, newspaper, you know, in New Bedford. Yep. But in the evenings, he operated this, uh, this hobby shop. And he, you know, a lot of stuff that you talked about um, like rung a bell uh, with me because, you know, I would go in there and I must have been, let's say, 11 or 12, maybe mm -hmm. with my dad, you know, and, and I had questions. I had a lot of questions. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> that, that guy, um, I, like I wanted to model in New Haven. And at that time, I think you could count on one hand with fingers left over the HO locomotives that came decorated for New Haven. Yep. It was that stupid non-New Haven, New Haven Fubi Atherin SDP 40. Remember that? Yes, I remember that. And it was a Tyco C430. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe one other that I but I, that, that escapes me, maybe an F unit or something. But really, you know, so I was in there lamenting that fact. And he said, Well, that's what decals are for. And I said, Tell me about the decals. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wasn't that an eye-opening day? I remember. Yes. So, you know, he yanked out a, an undecorated engine and yanked out some New Haven decals and explained the whole process. And I thought, yeah, that'll work. So what did I do? I took my unde undecorated black Atherin SW, well, they called it a 1500, but SW7 yeah. in, my, in my champ decals with no setting fluid because I forgot about that. Yeah. And applied the champ decals directly to the bare black plastic. Oh, God. Okay. 
It kind of looked like a sign on the side of it. <laughs> but it was a step, right? Well, I remember looking at that and going, uh-huh, who says there's no decorated New Haven switches? Yeah, you, you had taken a step forward. And But it was just like all these baby steps. You know, he got me from snap track to flex track and then from brass track to nickel silver and, you know, from an El Cheapo crummy power pack to a, oh, a model, an MRC a Golden 500. Remember those? Sure, had one. I still have ones around here someplace. In fact, it's on the bench. I use it for DC testing of, uh, of locomotives. Huh. Built to last. Got it in the 60s, for crying out loud. Yeah. Crazy. So so you had said you had some modeling stuff that you wanted to talk about that you were doing. I think you had, you know, you've gone on some hiatus here and there, and, and uh, but you've been doing things. So what have you been doing? So, you know, this all kind of stemmed from, you know, what do I want to do when I grow up? <laughs> um you know, or, you know, what do, what do I want to do when I retire? Um, which, you know, given, <laughs> given the stock market, you know, evidently isn't going to be anytime soon. Right. Um, I'm just going to keep on keeping on. Yeah. But um, so what I, what I kind of decided was that, you know, there may be a time under the right circumstances where, you know, another layout is, is plausible. I would but, hope so. Well, I hope so too. Um, but, um, you know, where, you know, beyond that, where do my interests lie? And, you know, so it goes back to, you know, prototype structures. And, and there, there are a number of structures that I've kind of filed away, uh, not just in the back of my mind, but I've actually chronicled, um, with the camera, um, uh, taken out the hundred foot tape measure and, and sketched them out and, and measured them. Um, and, and some of these places are just monstrously huge and, and, and really probably unmodelable, if that's a word. Well, selective compression, right? Well, but the, the you know, the, the point for me was kind of to challenge myself to see if they could be built um, in their entirety to scale. Sure. Oh, based to on, actual scale. Based on a period in time to scale. Uh, you know, and, and what would that scale, you know, what would that, that gauge be? So. Uh, That's interesting. So, you know, the other thing that I think we deal with as we age is, um, well, blindness, basically. <laughs> I can't see. Yeah, I, I, it's it's difficult for me to model an HO now. I told Karen the other day there are times when I feel like I want to put on my glasses to eat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I, I wear you know progressive lenses you know to, you know every minute that I'm awake now. Yeah, uh, because I, I I literally can't see without them, and I, I realized that uh, a year ago during a baseball game. <laughs> Uh, I was I was standing on the pitcher's mound and I'm looking in at the catcher and I realized there's I'm seeing you know two and a half catchers. Oh gosh! And I don't know which is the real one. Were they uh, telling you the same thing? Yeah, they were telling me the same thing, but that you know, 
you know, you kind of have to do, you have to, you have to pull out the slide rule and, and, and do some math and figure out, you know, who is who and where are they? But the scary, that wasn't the scary part. The scary part was that when I was up at the plate, I was seeing two and a half pitchers. Yeah. And how many baseballs? Uh, two and a half. And yeah. you know, which one is, is, is the one that's headed <laughs> towards the base. I think that's uh, Jackie so, Bradley's problem. Yeah. Yeah. So the glasses went on, but anyway, so, um, but some of these buildings are, you know, pro completely prohibitive to build in O scale. There's, there's no way they could be done. Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's back up a little bit here. O scale. So, <laughs> so O scale ha has always intrigued me um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, from, from the standpoint of someone whose vision isn't what it was 20 years ago, it, it, it's easier to see what you're doing. You can see why they have G scale. You can, yes, absolutely. You can see why they have one-to-one -one scale. <laughs> um, have and, you seen the, 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 uh, the track uh, work that Jim Lincoln has done in no scale? Oh yeah. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. It, it's, it's beautiful stuff. Um, you know, and then to me, some of the, some of the, the, the true structure building artists in our hobby, you know, the Dave Ravellas, um, you know, late Brian Nolan, uh, you know, worked predominantly in, in O scale and, and the, the quality of their work, the detail uh, was, was just phenomenal. And you kind of, to me, you know, I always wanted to kind of ascend to that level and I, I haven't, and I may never, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a, it's a goal. You feel like you have a better shot doing it in O than HO. Well, I, yes. The, the, the difficulty is it's, it, you can't hide things in O scale like you do in HO. HO is, is, is more of a broad brush kind of approach. Um, you know, you can fake um, weathering in HO scale. In O scale, your, your weathering has to be precise. Peeling paint in O scale to look right looks a lot different than peeling paint in HO scale. I'll bet, yeah. Um, you know, uh, painting, the painting of detail castings, the painting of figures uh, is, is a lot more detailed. Uh, the, the, the ability to weather is, is a lot more intricate than an HO scale. And, and those are things I haven't mastered yet. I think I've gotten better, but I, I'm still not, you know, in, in a league with those guys. And, and like I say, I may never be. So, so but, wait a minute. So you've been, you've been working in O scale for a while then. So I've, I've been working in O scale for a couple of years now. Huh. And I, I tried my hand, um, with a, with a Sierra West kit. Um, and, you know, they're, 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 some of them are not prototype based. Um, and, and that wasn't the point of, of building this kit. I, I, I built it because I, I, I wanted to, to really get a sense of the techniques. Well, and, the last time I thought you were building something, it was the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so, so I, I started working on this Sierra West kit as soon as I finished the, the, Millennium Falcon. The Millennium Falcon is actually on display. Uh, my buddy owns a, uh, a company. Uh, he actually has he has the um, Sloan valve 
dealership uh, you know they make the bathroom flush handles and okay toilets and so on and so forth uh for new england and it, it's it's on display in his boardroom um <laughs> so um so yeah so i've since moved on from from okay but um but so so what this kit taught me was was you know how to adapt my um strengths in 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 techniques and ho scale uh to to o scale and and to and to refine them so that they, it's not looking like i'm using ho scale techniques on on o scale structures um so I, so i did learn a little and what that allowed me to do was kind of take the next step which was to to um extrapolate uh the first prototype structure in this case it's actually a complex of buildings um into uh, o scale models, um, and so if you have a layout someday, it'll yeah. be O scale. I mean, that's that's been determined. No. Oh, um, for a lot of reasons that, and I'll touch on some of them briefly. It would be H O. Okay. And I know I just contradicted myself. Uh, I had that thought, <laughs> but but here's why. I, I I think to to build a model of a structure. In O scale is one thing. I think to build an entire layout in O scale is another thing, and it would it would be extremely frustrating. Um, there is yeah, how a, much area you've got. That's that would require a lot. Yeah, you, there, there isn't enough. There isn't enough. That's what planet. we want to do anyway. Yeah, there isn't enough planet for one thing. But the other thing is there there is a dearth of um, material in in O scale. There always has been, there always will be, uh, you know, things that you wouldn't be inclined to scratch build like figures and vehicles. And you realize the, the S scalers are snorting at that, right? Well, well, yeah, because they've got a far worse than the O scalers do. Um, but then again, you know, there are far fewer S scale prototype modelers. Probably. Um, so, so anyway, um, so, you know, Dick Elwell and I have collaborated on many projects over the years. And he, he's so wonderful to work with because, you know, he, he's encouraging it at the same time, you know, he'll, he'll kind of give you the hairy eyeball and, you know, say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> um, but he'll do it in such a way that, you know, doesn't totally discourage you. So about 15 years ago, uh, he said, you know, there's this coal and grain company here in, and Adams where he lives that he said, I think would make a fantastic model. He said, next time you're up, let's go over there and we'll, we'll take a look at it. And you can tell me what you think. And I went over there and um, we actually got a tour inside this building. It's, it's called the Hoosick Valley coal and grain. It, and it's still it, a business. Well, it's not anymore. It was then. Jeez. And we actually got a tour inside the, the grain elevator were you able to get some pictures yes i was um hold that thought okay so um you know we we saw how the you know the grain was stored how it was accessed all the different shoots um you know how the whole thing worked and and, and it was really fantastic uh there was also a, a coal building uh and there were two other buildings uh one was also used for for some coal storage and the other was a, a farm machinery building and it was all part of this um, linear 
group of structures on this siding on the, the Boston and Albany. How uh, long had it been since it was rail served? Um, many, 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 many years uh, to the point where they actually never got cr got grain in anything other than a 40 foot boxcar. Yeah, makes sense. So but but you could see, you know, the mechanisms were still there for for transporting the, the grain from, um, you know, the ground up into the elevators. Yeah. And the yeah. same thing with the coal. So. At the time, 15 years ago, we, we measured and photographed everything that existed. And, you know, life happened. And I, I lost everything. I have no idea where it is. Oh, really? You lost all of the prototype info? Yeah. Oh, geez. so So about a year ago, Dick said, hey, you know, um, whatever. Ha he, he said, I'd like to build this thing. He said, you know, can you look and, and, and see if you have the CAD drawing. Now, I, I did at one point, but when I went back and looked, it, it was nowhere to be found. And I, and I said, I, I'm sorry, Dick, I said, I, I don't. And I, you know, I, I, this is a person I will not disappoint. So I said, but I'll tell you what, I said, uh, I'm coming up next week. I said, we're going over there. We're gonna do this again. And I, I said, I'll draw it out. I said, I wanna, I want to cut it in O scale for myself. And I said, but I'll cut it in HO for you. And we'll both build it. Huh. So, so we went over there and I, I forgot how massive um, a structure this is. Um, you know, in, in HO scale, it's almost two feet high, the, the, the grain elevator. Boy, that sounds pretty big. It's a big building. So this was no, this was no minor facility. This was no minor facility. Hmm. So now the, the coal shed is gone, burnt down. Uh, and that was the second version of it anyway. Uh, the, 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 the next building down the line still exists. In fact, I actually, I, I knew I had drawn it all out at one point and catted it all out because I used that building um, in one of my kits. Hmm. Um, and then the fourth building was just a foundation. So I contacted the Adams Historical Society and I said, you know, do you have any old photographs of this building? And, and you know, they were very nice. And the, the, the head of the Historical Society sent me the only uh, old photograph that, that he had, which was dated 1911. Jeez. And it, it, it shows a, what appears to be a very new building and, you know, gave and it, it was one view, you know, one, the track side of the building. And it gave me a lot of information, but you know, it was, it, it was missing, obviously missing a lot because three sides of the building were, were not there. And the other three buildings, there are no, evidently no pictures, at least as far as the historical society goes. I guess it was way better than nothing though. It, it was, it was very helpful uh, because it, it, it not only answered some questions, but what it told me was that over the years, modifications have been made to the building as it stands now that I didn't particularly like, but when I looked at the original picture, you know, from 1911, I liked it much better. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I believe it or not, I had that same reaction to 
um, the Purina at Wyalusing that I did. And I had taken pictures of it, just stumbled upon it really, right before they tore it down. It was out of business and, and kind of like, you know, orange taped off, getting ready to be torn down. I just lucked into being there at the right time and took the pictures. And, you know, like a few weeks later, it was like gone. But I was much later, uh, I got a couple of photos that Wayne Sittner took of the same uh, mill. Mm -hmm. And they were taken in my era. And just like you just said, I like that configuration of it much better. Had I not gotten those pictures, I would have built it like the modern one and been satisfied enough with it. But I'm so glad I was able to get those pictures because not only is it right for my era, but it's just a better looking building. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, in this case, you know, solve a mystery uh, because there are, you know, two structures that, that, you know, just don't exist anymore. Uh, you know, one you can partially see in, in the photograph that I have and I can, you know, I've got enough information so that I can, you know, probably get real, real close. Uh, you know, the fourth building is, uh, you know, it might as well be in a black hole in space. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's going to be, it's going to take, um, you know, someone to step up and, and, and say, Hey, you know, I've, I've got this information. Um, my goal is that when the, when the complex is complete and there's no time frame, I mean, the, the thing about, you know, the thing you realize quickly when you're working on, um, you know, building in, in that scale to that size, to that complexity, uh, and, and hopefully to that fidelity uh, is that you can't really put a time frame on it. Right. And, and at the same time, you're, you know, you're trying to go back in history and, and, and solve, um, you know, clues, find clues to solve a mystery. Yep. I'm, I'm actually very familiar with that process. Sometimes it's a lot of fun and sometimes it's massively frustrating. Yeah. I, and, you know, I've been over there probably four or five times now with Dick, um, you know, just to kind of double check information, um, you know, kind of before you take the next step, uh, you don't want to, as George Patton said, you don't want to pay for the same real estate twice. Right. Uh, and I, and I, I don't want to get to a point where I've you know, made such a mistake that I've got to start over. So I would also say that depending upon the kind of photo searching that you're doing, um, I, I found that I could, I could search for information 15 times and come up empty. And then I would just phrase a search somewhat differently and luck upon the one photo that I really needed, you know? So uh, you never know what's out there. There's stuff in people's Flickr albums and they're, you know, like, you know, they took a picture of their dad in front of a building, but but there's the building you were looking for, you know? That kind of stuff happens all the time. Well, you, you know, the way you go about it is, is different than, you know, if you're, um, you know, proto freelancing or, you know, you're, you know, under the heading of not that there's anything wrong with it, you know, you, you're just building craftsman structure kits, um, you know, which I've done for years, but, uh, you know, I, I, I went and looked at the, um, are you familiar with the Sanborn maps? Oh yeah. So uh, this complex is on the, on the Sanborn map that exists. 
And usually it's, it's my understanding that, that they did a pretty good job of capturing the accuracy of the footprint of a building. And in some cases, um, you know, some of the architectural detail. Yep. And, you know, the Nimke series of books on the Rutland is a perfect example of that. He exclusively uses Sanborn maps to, to detail um, the, the Rutland trackage and, um, you know, structures on the right of way. It's amazing that they did it to that degree of detail. Well, having said that, Mike, um, I would tell you that they were dead wrong with this complex. Is that right? Yeah, uh, it was useless to me. So um, the next step for me, um, the next time I go up to Adams to see Dick, um, we're going to go over to the town hall and, and pay a visit to um, the building inspector and see if they've got blueprints. Uh, you know, those are, possible. All, those are all a public record. Yep. And, um, you know, most places will, you know, charge you a fee to, to make a copy of them. Which is usually well worth it and less than you'd think. Well, you know, I, I think given the amount of time I've spent, you know, trying to figure this out, it, it, it's really kind of the next, the, you know, the next reasonable thing to do. So there hasn't been any construction done on the project at all yet. It, there has actually. The, the, the grain mill itself is built. Uh, it's so not the O scale one or the HO? In, a, in O scale. Okay. Um, it's not completed, but so when I say it's built, you know, all the walls and, and roofing are done. Um, it, you know, the, the, the details, uh, some of the shingling, um, you know, haven't been completed yet. Sounds like this thing needs to be on a table by itself. Oh, it's, it's presently on a two by four foot piece of plywood. Right. Uh, and it, it, it takes up almost the entire um, sheet of plywood. And the reason you have not shared any photos of this with me is what? Well, you know, I think <laughs> unlike you. This sounds really interesting. Well, you're, you're wonderful in sharing the process. Um, I, you know, I look at, it doesn't matter what I'm building. When I'm in process, I look at it and, and I say, this just sucks <laughs> and I hate it to death. And, you know, I, I, I just want to, you know, and then I get to the end and I say, all right, I, I like it now. Um, so, you know, I don't, I, I've always been comfortable and kind of, you know, keeping it close to the vest and under wraps until I get to that point and, and then I'm more than happy to, you know, talk about the process. And I, I didn't say call Helsinki. I said, just send me a photo of it. <laughs> nah, I can do that too. <laughs> uh, so yeah. Build so up, it, it's like, well, now I want to see this gigantic yeah, thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it, it's interesting too, because, you know, I've always been an, o, uh, an HO scale modeler. So I am conditioned to seeing something in HO scale and visualizing it as a one-to-one -one scale prototype structure. Sure. O scale just blows my mind. Everything just feels so big. Yeah, I can see that. And I'm not at a point yet where my mind can do that math and, 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 and make the, the logical transition. Like I can't. Well, I mean, unless you like 
unless you go whole hog on O scale and do enough of it for long enough, it, it may never be able to really do that, right? Yeah, uh, that, 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 is a, that is a real possibility. Because everything you're talking about with, uh, with HO is the product of doing it for a long time, many years of experience with it. Yeah. Um, now, you know, some of these mills that I've got, um, you know, teed up in the background for future projects just have to be done in HO scale. So yeah. getting back to HO real quickly here, before I forget, mm. um, you know, you intrigued me when you said there's going to be another layout someday that kind of has to be, right? Yep. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what I heard. So yep. have you thought about what it would be? Well, that's the beauty of, of concept, right? <laughs> uh, it can be anything. <laughs> Obviously, but it's, uh, I can tell you right now, it's either going to be Penn Central or Rutland. Well, so you already knew the answer. Uh, well, and it can't be both, can it? No, it, it, it can't be, um, you know, unless I want to, uh, you know, face the, the scorn and wrath of my, my fellow modelers. But uh, oh, who would do that? Um, <laughs> so so the, there's, there's three possibilities, actually. And, 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 and one is, one is a proto freelance, but so, so the Rutland, obviously, I mean, I've got, you know, decades of, of research and knowledge and information uh, about the Rutland. Um, I think I could model it with my eyes closed. If but, I can give a, just one little teeny weeny bit of advice, mm -hmm. it would be, of course you can model it with your eyes closed, but I think, I think a more important consideration is what would you like to be able to go down there and experience on a regular basis? You know, right. where, where's your heart in it? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's tough because, you know, any of these scenarios, I'm, I'm modeling a bygone era. Sure. So, and, and interestingly enough, you know, that part of, you know, the, the, the former Rutland, you know, former you know, Vermont rail system now, but, you know, they're running more trains than the Rutland ever did. Right. You know, longer trains, six axle train, you know, diesels, you know, it, it's not, it's not your grandmother's Rutland rail. No, you wouldn't have thought that. Um, Are you ever tempted to model something more contemporary? Uh, so that's kind of the proto freelance thing. So, you know, um, you know, Dick Elwell has done an amazing job in, in proto freelancing, um, you know, a railroad that people will walk into his basement and say, I remember that building, you know, and it, of course it never existed. Hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, because he was so convincing and, and so proto centric uh, in the way he went about it, that, you know, people think that the Hoosick Valley lines existed, but, you know what, but his, his layout is based in the fifties. You know, what, what would have happened if the Rutland ex existed into the sixties and what would have happened if the, the Hoosick Valley were now a sixties or seventies era railroad? Yeah. These are all fun things to ponder, huh? And, and how would these two, because geographically they're very close to each other and, 
you know, with, with mergers and acquisitions, who's to say that, you know, one isn't taken under the wing of the other. And, and what does that all look like? Hmm. Um, you know, is there a way to do that? And that's very intriguing. Um, so that would, that would be, that's the kind of thing that our buddy Confalon does so well, you know what I mean? Thinking, thinking uh, like that kind of realistic extrapolation, if you will. Well, he, to me, he's, you know, he's the benchmark for it. Um, you know, and, and if I ever went in that, on, in that route, um, I think I'd probably have to adopt him <laughs> um, just to make sure, you know, I was doing it the right way, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, and then lastly, Mike, you know, we, we grew up with the Penn central. Sure. And, you know, the old saying is you model what you know. Um, and I had every intention at one time of having a Penn central uh, layout. And, I, and I actually, now that I think about it, I did for a while, but that was, you know, in my teens. Sure. You know, and, and for years and years, it was the most uncool thing in the hobby. I always liked it. Uh, well, I always did too, but, but, you know, I would say that I was, <laughs> there weren't many people who felt the same way I did. No, and it's true. But, it became... but, you know, in retrospect, when you can see that it came in and did away with something that they loved, you could see why. Sure. I, I now understand how the steam guys feel about diesel, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. To, to, I, I think, um, you know, the Penn Central was the straw that broke the camel's back, right? I mean, you, you know, you lost three railroads that were near and dear to a lot of people's hearts. Right. Um, right before that, you lost steam. Right. And now, you know, the Penn Central comes along and, and, and you know, takes up these three railroads. And, and you know what? On a long enough timeline, I, I mean, on, part of me hopes I don't get to see it, but part of me hopes I do because it'll mean good things in terms of longevity. But, you know, there could be a time when there aren't diesels. Right. Which would be, you know, of course, they're called diesels. That's what you call them. <laughs> <laughs> what would you call them if they weren't? Batteries? Like what? Yeah, yeah. Teslas. Locomotives, but you know what I mean? It would be very different. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and how would we feel about that? Um, it wouldn't be good. I don't, yeah, <laughs> tell you right now <laughs> i don't i don't think it would be no. uh, so you know so so you know those are the three balls that are in the air right now interesting uh, you know and look you know any one of them i can't do all three um i probably can't do you know one you know i'm i'm gonna be 60 this year uh you know uh, but um you know I'm, I'm more than likely going to do something my uh, advice is to do it before being under the layout gets onerous. <laughs> right. Right. Well, you know, there, 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 there are certain other kind of tumblers that have to fall into place, um, you know, before I can get started. Of course. Um, you know, and, and, and you, know, you know, what? anything you do now, like a structure, for example, um, that you can incorporate later, it kind of gives you a jump start, you know, and wouldn't be a bad thing. And it kind of keeps it, keeps it in the on deck circle, so to speak. Well, you know, for me, um, you know, that the history of, of railroads has always been a, a big part of the fascination of the hobby for me. Um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of what, 
um, is is intriguing to me about this kind of group of structures that are that are, are put together for um, you know batting order, if you will. Yep. Um, because they all they all have rich histories to them. Um, you know, one was the the first uh, mill to to make Union Army uniforms for the Civil War. Jeez. Um, you know, and again, I, you know, there's, there's no way to, you know, short of owning an airplane hangar, you know, building it in O scale. Right. Um, but it, you know, it could be built in HO and, and I, and I, you know, the other part to it, uh, is the challenge, you know, can I do it? Think about the, you know, the giant industries that I've modeled on my layout, right? Sure. Um, I mean, one of them takes up a whole peninsula. Yeah. And yet it's probably maybe 15 to 20 percent of the of the prototype. Yep. So um, it doesn't really diminish my pleasure in operating there or even looking at it. You know what I mean? So uh, the selective compression done right works. Yep. There's and just one more anecdote um, before we move on, but. Uh, there's a, a an old mill that's not far from the, the Grafton and Upton Railroad. And uh, I've, I've passed it a million times and, and always thought, you know, this thing is fascinating. It's an old wooden mill. Why hasn't it burnt down? Right. Um, you know, I, I need to, this needs to be a model someday. And, you know, from the road, it just didn't look like there was, you know, a whole lot to it. And boy, I got into that thing, you know, with the camera and the sketch pad and the tape measure, and it is completely monstrous. Hmm. Uh, you know, you get around on the backside of that thing, and it's just, it, you know, it can be modeled. Did it seem like something that had been added on to and added on to? Well, and that's and that's the 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 common history of every mill that started out as a as a wooden mill, right? Um, you know, business and this particular mill was was built in the 1830s originally, Jeez. and you know was still in business up till. Well, I mean, it's still you know they've sublet it now, but you know it was probably you know a woolen mill up until the the 60s. Back when things were built to last indefinitely. And men were men and you know, <laughs> you know the rest of that. You know the rest of it. Yeah, we can't even <laughs> Gee, let's not go there. No, no, no. Well, uh, uh, I have I have official uh officially put you on notice that you gotta send me a picture of this mill. Yeah, I yeah. have witnesses now. Yeah. So we're we're all gonna hold you to it. Yeah, no, I'll 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 take some pictures, you know, within the next day or so. And uh and, you know, send them to me or, or put them on the podcast group. I mean, I, you know, either works. Yeah. I think I'd just as soon keep them a little private for now. Okay. Um, but you know, at, at some point I'll, I'll, I'll reach that point of critical mass where they, where I'll feel comfortable in sharing them with the group and I'll be happy to do that too. Boy, this is the, this is the shy and retiring Scott Mason. Well, it's just, yeah, it's just a comfort level. I'm, you know, there are a lot of, of, um, modelers out there who are better structure builders than me uh, to that i would say so <laughs> well you know so just just my own personal plenty of better modelers than me and it doesn't that doesn't stop me shouldn't stop you either you might want to think about it though 
<laughs> There's enormous power in not caring about certain things. Yep. Yep. Before we uh, before we go here, I did want to I, I did want to mention to my world's most patient customer group, um, namely the people who um, I do uh, locomotive installs for uh, via my little company, Dartmouth Locomotive Works. And I say the most patient people in the world because many of them have been waiting two and three months for installations to, to get back to them. Um, and I've been in contact with all of them, but I just kind of wanted to give a general, a general notice as to what's going on with things in general. Um, it's not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> and, Never is. <laughs> well, how could it be really? I would have to be a complete slacker to take three months off and tell people, yeah, I'll do your engines whenever I get around to it or feel like it. It's not really like that. Um, the, the basic problem has been um, shortages of the electronic components. And, uh, you know, I'm a Logsound direct uh, dealer. And uh, I have always, up, up until modern times, been able to get whatever I needed whenever I needed it. So what would I keep around? You know, eight of these, 10 of these, you know, I, I wouldn't keep 50 of anything around because didn't need to. So the way it is now, not like that. They are basically filling back orders at all times. So there was a time, for example, towards, I guess, the last quarter of last year, where all I had were power packs. I had no decoders. I couldn't, wow. couldn't get a decoder for love or money. And then there's basically three types of decoders that I use, the, you know, the micros, the, the eight pin and the, and the 21 pin plug-in ones, you know, that's the beauty of the Loke Sound line. You don't have to have 50 SKUs, you know, cause you can put any file in any of those decoders. So anyway, um, eventually as I'd get in a group of micros or I'd get in a group of eight pin decoders or get in a handful of 21 pins with the power packs that I had on hand, I could fill those orders and get them out to people. Never realizing that the next problem I was gonna have was power packs. So right now I've got all the decoders I need, even though they don't by the way, but I mean, I kind of ordered in advance realizing that there could be some long lead times, but I've been waiting three months now for power wow. packs. And the, unless you're Mike Confalone, your installation wants a power pack. So they're all just sitting there with, you know, scale sound speakers allocated for them and in the, in their boxes and the decoders sitting there allocated and in their boxes and the LEDs are in stock. <laughs> the only thing we're waiting for are power packs. And the first thing you do in an install is solder the power pack wires to the decoder pop it in the tester and write the file. That's the order of business. You can't really, there's nothing I can do to, other than maybe disassemble the locos, which I have, to speed the process along once the power packs come in. Rumor has it uh, that they're expecting a shipment in July and everybody's fingers are crossed that the power packs will be in it. I have a large back order that they promised to fill. And um, with a little luck, I'll be able to get back on the horse and, and do installs uh, in July for my people. I guess the moral of the story for me is in these days of supply chain disruptions, um, you have to be your own warehouse. And I've taken to 
trying to stock uh, greater quantities of things than I normally would with the understanding of I'm going to use them. So in order to ensure that I can get them, I have to order more than, than I would normally have to, you know, reasonably fill my orders in a, over a month or two. Um, and that's just like the new normal, you know? So um, I just want to thank, I want to let people know what's going on and thank them for their extreme patience. I think we all kind of know that supply chains in general are pretty messed up. It's not just my power packs, but you know, that's one that's become a, you know, a particular point of pain that's affecting uh, a large, an increasingly growing group of, of, of nice folks. So I just wanted to, I just wanted to say that. Well, yeah, I, thankfully, I, I think, like you said, you know, everyone understands that the supply chain for just about everything right now is a total mess. Yeah, I don't want to tell you what I paid for diesel the other day when I filled up the thing from my Kubota. Oh, God. Yeah. No. <laughs> in, uh, in parting here, I just wanted to uh, say a word about our good buddy, uh, Craig Beesgeier. He's, he's having a real, a real uh, health problem right now. And I just, I just wanted to let everybody know how we feel about him and, and, uh, and really are hoping for the best. But I, I just really... Couldn't couldn't uh, couldn't be happening to a nicer guy, and it's really really unfortunate. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Craig. He he's actually um, a semi regular on this podcast. So yep. uh, let's 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 give him some well wishes, folks. Yeah, uh, I've known Craig for, for thirty years, and and there there isn't a nicer guy in the hobby. So uh, we're we're thinking of you. Yep. All right, folks. Well, on that note, we will. Uh, we will try to make sure that we fill, fulfill our quarterly obligation. And um, I don't know, it's kind of weird doing the podcast on a non-schedule. It seems like the quarters go by just as fast as the months used to, you know, but um, my intent is to not deliberately make it take three months before I do another one. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> Till then, everybody, 